You're listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, my name is Octavio Fernandez y Mostajo. My name is Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Uh, today we had a, a conversation around something that we... Well, we, we don't shy away from difficult conversations, no, we but don't. we did. It was a conversation around end of life, really, yeah. and what it looks like. Um, sort of some questions around assisted suicide and medically assisted in, assistance in dying and euthanasia, uh, as well as then what does that what does that mean for our society yeah. about what we think about dignity, about what we think about care, about what we think about human life, um, and more importantly, what does that mean for us as Christians as we are seeking to see people yeah. as image bearers of, of God. Yeah. And so we, it, was, it was a great conversation. Yeah. So, so this is a conversation that will get everybody emotional. I think everybody's going to have a say it, because it's, it's very intense about talking about pain mm-hmm. and, and, and suffering and... and what the government or what what are we proposing uh, for for you that are suff- that are suffering or people that are, that we love that are suffering? Mm-hmm. It is really difficult to make like easy decisions when mm-hmm. when, there's, yeah, when there's so much suffering, and so many emotions. Mm-hmm. So so you might love some parts of the podcast, you might not love the other ones, but we ask you to listen through the whole conversation and let us know in the comments what you think and how did it make you feel. And because most likely you're gonna get emotional, emotional like like we all did. Yeah. And and there's so many nuances. And this was just like an hour conversation. Yeah. That, I mean, this is a long, long conversation, and people have to be heard. Mm-hmm. And and this is basically part of that. Yeah. Um. So we were talking with Dr. Margaret Cottle, who is a palliative care physician in Vancouver, and she works in home hospice programs and as a clinical assistant professor at UBC, Faculty of Medicine. She speaks internationally about life issues and about palliative care, and she also serves on the board of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition and the Christian Advocacy Society of Greater Vancouver. Um, I think, though, the most important thing that you need to know about Margaret is that she's spent over 25 years taking care of people at the end of their lives uh, and seeking to care and be present uh, and to, um, to be, to exercise her gifting uh, as a, as a physician in that way. So um, it's a great conversation. And um, yeah, as Octavia said, it will raise different emotions, but we, we um, encourage you to listen to the whole thing and keep the conversation going and keep reading and thinking. And please do send this podcast to to many, many of your friends. Yeah. Enjoy. Margaret, welcome to the Regent Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you. Um, we, you, you're a, you've a long time friend of Regent, and you've been connected to the community in different ways. But tell us a little bit, maybe a little bit about how you've become connected to Regent. But more than that, sort of your journey into medicine and how you've, as a Christian, why why do you care about what we're going to be talking about today? Lots of questions there. My first introduction to Regent was while I was in medical school between 1974 and 1978, and we used to study in the basement of the library over at VST and some of the Regent students were there and we're Mm. still quite good friends with some of the folks who were studying at Regent back in the day. Mm. I also um, took the bull by the horns and studied systematic theology with Dr. Packer Mm. when my children were very tiny and didn't was 
early, early days of word processing <laughs> and oh. didn't realize that the word processor was doing this paper in single space. So I thought, man, I used to be able to write a paper so much faster in university and ended up writing a paper that was twice as long as I needed to write. <laughs> but he graciously read the whole thing anyway. Yeah. Oh, so great. and then I've been helping out teaching different places and being involved in the Pastors and Leaders Conference. Mm -hmm. Just very, very grateful for Regent and for the ministry that you have to Vancouver and to the greater world community. Mm -hmm. Very thoughtful, inclusive, very glad mm -hmm. to be part of it. Mm -hmm. Great. Mm -hmm. So then, yeah, yeah, tell us a little bit about your, you're a doctor, you're a medical doctor. Yes. Um, and so tell us a little bit about your journey into medicine and then sort of how you've landed into the, this particular, we're going to be talking mm. about assisted suicide and euthanasia and that, that field of things. How did, you, how did you come interested into that? And mm. or how did, tell us that about that. Well, that's also a bit of a long story. I got rather dragged kicking and screaming into medicine when I was already finished. I had already finished my second year of university and was working at a Christian camp and there was a bad accident and I had to be with one of our fellow counselors and I had always thought that I'd never be able to do medicine because I couldn't stand the sight of blood or mm. things like that mm. and I knew that this particular young woman was very squeamish and if I went in to be with her in the emergency room and passed out she would never make it yeah. so I just prayed and I said Lord you know help me and he came through in a huge way and it opened my eyes to think well maybe I could do medicine and it was a long journey and I ended up in medicine and after I had been a doctor my mom's cancer breast cancer uh, metastasized and she died when she was only 61. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything about palliative care at the time. In fact, when we went to medical school, graduated in 1978, my husband's also a physician, a classmate, um, there was no teaching about death and dying. In fact, people who were dying were isolated on the wards. There was very little pain control and the gigantic textbook with the title cancer had no entry for pain even though about 80 percent of people who have cancer have pain of some sort at some point in their journey so this was something that really interested me we also had uh, my husband had a cousin and i had the child of a cousin who were teenagers who mm -hmm. each died of cancer within about two years of each other and the way that they were treated and not treated in a way was really distressing uh, to me. And some things that happened to my mother were also quite distressing in terms of the way that people spoke to her and didn't address some of the issues. But it was really amazing to be able to care for her at home. And that was something I just did kind of on force of will mm. because I didn't know anything about palliative care. And we moved to Nova Scotia in 1988 for my husband to do his ophthalmology residency. And one of the people in his department said, well, your kids are in school now. What are, what are you going to do? And I thought, well, I'm really interested in hospice, but I'm not a, a 
a public health nurse because that's who I thought did palliative care and hospice. And he said, you don't have to be a nurse. You can be a doctor. In fact, in 10 days, we're having a conference at our hospital here in Halifax, and I'll get you a ticket. So it was so interesting to see these things that uh, I had always been interested in medicine. I used to get in trouble in medical school because I wanted to hear the people's stories. And I'd come mm. and I was supposed to present the patient to the preceptor. And I'd say, wow, this person was in a concentration <laughs> camp and did all this. And the eyes would roll and they'd say, come on, what's going on with yeah. the medical part of it? And all of a sudden I found this area of medicine where I was supposed to find out about the person's story, mm -hmm. that it was whole person care that I'd been looking for for such a long time and which had drawn me into medicine in the first place. And the person who was the founder of modern hospice medicine or palliative care, uh, Dr. Uh, Cicely Saunders, she has this very famous saying, she's British, and she, she has since passed away, but she had this very famous saying that, you matter because you are you, and you matter to the very mo last moment of your life. And we will help you not only to live until that last moment, but to die in comfort. And one of the things that she developed was this concept of total pain. So that pain is not just the physical pain you're experiencing, but it also includes social pain. So mm. things with your family and your community, as the Hawaiians like to say, your ohana. Mm. Uh, also psychological pain. So the, the fears and the feelings, those mm. things that you're having, and spiritual pain. She was also a very strong Christian. She uh, established this idea of total pain with those four domains. And it's, it's really kind of a Venn diagram where they're overlapping areas. And you can't really get people's pain controlled, their physical pain controlled, until all of those other areas are under control. I have a really beautiful story about that from one of our patients in Nova Scotia. I have changed some of the details so that it was a long time ago, mm -hmm. too. But I'll call her Jen. And some of the folks who have heard me speak will uh, know this story. But she was a young woman, and she had a gynecological cancer. And we had a terrible time trying to get her pain under control. And finally, we figured out that she felt that this pain was a result of a curse from God because of what she termed her promiscuous lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So we disabused her of that and got her pastor in to speak to her, talk to her about the character of God and how he wasn't like that. And her pain improved dramatically, but it was still really not under control. And we were very puzzled about why this was happening. So I went in and I said to her, Jen, you know, we feel like there's still something else that's not quite there for you, something that's still bothering you. And she said to me, do you really want to know? I said, yes, I really want to know. And so she said, well, I'm just worried that after I die, nobody is going to be able to cash in my Club Z reward points. And that was from a store named Zeller's, which is no longer with us, sort of like um, Walmart or Kmart. And I just looked at her and repeated the last phrase, your Club Z points. And she said, yes, she said, I've been saving for two years for a bicycle for my little boy. And I'm just afraid that after I die, those points are going to go to waste and he'll never get his bicycle. Well, 
we don't get to work too many miracles in palliative care, yeah. but we took some money from the Palliative Care Foundation and her points, and with that little boy was riding his bicycle yeah. up and down the hallway yeah. of the palliative care oh, unit wow. within 24 hours. And we got her pain under control mm-hmm. with half the amount of pain medication she needed before that, yeah. and it was under better control. And I think that's a beautiful example of total pain yeah. and also the work of the community. Yeah, and holistic yeah. care. Yeah, sort of exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, who wouldn't want to be involved in care like that mm-hmm. you know, rather than running people through a 12-minute appointment mm-hmm. and that sort yeah. of thing? So I suppose I've always really been interested in caring for vulnerable populations and little animals. I thought I'd like to be a veterinarian for a long time <laughs> until I found out you had to see the animals when they were sick. <laughs> and you're like, no, no, I want that. Yeah. yeah. And so it was, it was really the Lord enabling me and equipping me, mm. excuse me, equipping me to do this work and caring for my own mother. Uh, being out of medicine for a while was also really important, even though it was difficult. Mm. It helped me to realize how people felt when they lost a profession due to their illness or a mom who'd been taking care of her family for 50 years and could no longer do that, what kind of impact that might have on her, Mm. gave me a lot more compassion Mm. and empathy for people Mm. and helped me to take a step back and look at things. Uh, Mm. So it's been a a real journey Mm. and My mom died quite young, and then my father died in his into his nineties with Alzheimer's. So my mom was very with it to the last moments of her life. But my dad had some cognitive issues, and he was a PhD organic chemist, which made it hard to see sometimes the things Mm -hmm. that he was struggling with. But it gave my sister and my brother and me ringside seats at what it means to really care for somebody and also cemented and affirmed my opposition to hasten death for Mm -hmm. any member of our human family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I think part of the issue is uh, maybe the biggest question and issue we have as a, as a, as humanity is the uh, question of suffering why do we suffer? And if God is good, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And now, what do we do with suffering? Now that we have more technology, there's, quote-unquote, easier, faster, or, or new ways to deal with suffering that, that mm. didn't exist before. So we, we kind of have con- more control over suffering now than ever before. We're about to, like, conquer the, the, the biggest, uh, like, enemy of, 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 of humanity in a way. Like, we, we now can deal with suffering. And if, if our, like, our drugs or, or painkillers cannot control it, we, now we have another way to do it. We call it euthanasia, assisted suicide, or assisted death. So now we can stop most of our suffering. Yay, we're so advanced now. And, <laughs> and going to, now, now I want to go into, into the, 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 like the core of the topic here. What, and, and talk about assisted suicide and, and euthanasia and the, lang- and the correct language around it. Because people call it assisted death or assisted suicide or well, euthanasia. Medicaid, what is the difference? What are the nuances there? Mm-hmm. Uh, please help us with that. Okay. First of all, the term that's used in Canada and many parts of the world is medical aid in dying or medical assistance in dying. And those of us 
who have worked for years in palliative care who feel like we have assisted people at the time of their dying uh, are really disgusted by the use of this. Right. It's, it's done quite deliberately to sanitize and medicalize one citizen killing another citizen. And I'm sorry to be so blunt, but that's really what it is. At least the Dutch call it medical termination. So they, although they use the medical term, they are at least honest about what's happening mm. rather than this, this sort of filmy view of this is some lovely romantic medical procedure that just ends suffering in such an easy way. So there are two basic ways that this can happen. One is what is termed assisted suicide, used to be called physician-assisted suicide, but a physician doesn't necessarily have to be involved, and actually either with euthanasia, but uh, we'll come to that. But assisted suicide means that the patient himself or herself has to take some sort of action. Mm. Assisted suicide would mean that the patient is supposedly needing to take some action himself or herself. Mm. Now, many of the places where this is legal, there's no requirement for oversight to be there. So if you have the pills in your home and oh. somebody forced them on you, there'd be no way to say that it actually was you doing it. But the idea is that you would have to take the pills yourself or you would get somebody to help you do that. But you have to take some sort of mm. action. So some people will say, well, that's prescribing the pills. Assisted yeah, suicide okay. is prescribing the pills. Okay. Yeah. So euthanasia, however, in Canada, it can be a doctor or a nurse practitioner. Other places, it doesn't have to be someone who's medical. The reason that it was left that way in Canada was because it was more sanitary that way to have someone right. who was in the medical profession because then it looked like it was just another medical procedure rather mm -hmm. than sanitizing this and saying, oh, well, we're not really killing people. We're aiding their dying. Mm -hmm. So what that involves is... In Canada and in other places, too, usually a series of injections that at the end of it, the person is dead. And this has appeal to people who are wanting a hastened death because it means they don't have to take final responsibility. They don't have to take the decision at the time. They can have the doctor come. And Quebec, in, in order to pass their law, which came in before the uh, national law here actually just redefined euthanasia as part of health care. So, because health care is a uh, provincial jurisdiction uh -huh. and decriminalizing one citizen taking the life of another uh -huh. is federal. So, what they did was they just redefined it as health care and said that this is a medical procedure. So it's really rather diabolical the way the whole thing has happened. And at first, when these things were brought before the courts, the idea was at every place where this is brought in, it's always the thin edge of the wedge. It's always, oh, this person is suffering so terribly, he's going to be dead very soon, mm -hmm. or by the time... The, in fact, the, what, the case here in Canada that uh, Gloria Taylor who brought the case before the Supreme Court, it was unbelievable the way that it came about because she had amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. She had ALS. And she argued that it was a, a, a breach of her charter right to life 
not to be able to have someone kill her when she was beyond the point of being able to kill herself. Uh I'm not making this up. So the court ruled that this interval between when she would have wanted to die and the interval and when she, and the time when she would have had to kill herself if she was going to be able to do it, that that potential loss of life breached her charter right to life. Mm-hmm. So somehow they ruled that euthanasia was permissible because of her right to life. And everybody was saying, oh, it's only for these really hard cases like that where they won't be able to do it themselves. and It's really terrible suffering and all of this. And the moment that the law was passed, then there's a court challenge to say it's not broad enough. And here in Canada, as a cautionary tale to those of you who are looking at this around the world, the criteria for hasten death have recently been expanded by the courts to say that when the Supreme Court ruled that the only things that needed to be in place were that a person had an irremediable medical condition with intolerable suffering as defined by the patient that was not amenable to a treatment that was acceptable to the patient, even if there were treatments that were available, that would be enough justification for the state to be involved in taking the life of this individual. And those of us who were looking at this at the time said, this is going to be open season, Mm. and it has turned out to be that way here in Canada. Yeah. So just to clarify, so medical assistance in dying or assisted suicide is no doctor necessarily needs to be involved other than prescribing the pill. Assisted suicide, you don't have to be, no one needs to be involved except for the prescription. Yep. And then, but euthanasia does need to have a doctor involved. In Canada and in many jurisdictions, it is a doctor or a nurse practitioner. Got it. But some places you can have just someone who's a practitioner of, of, doing right. that. Some places right. in Canada or in the world? No, in the world. Okay, okay. In the world. I'm not sure whether it has to be in Switzerland, for example, whether you have to have a doctor. Uh-huh. There's Got some it. places in the world yeah, where yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to it be a doctor. It is a bit contextual then, isn't it? Like it's, and it's probably exactly. easy for it to keep us to keep it in the, yeah, the Canadian, because it it's so different in different it's places. It's different in different places, but I will say that what we have found across the world is wherever you have only assisted suicide, where the person needs to have some involvement in making this happen, even if it's just taking the pill or whatever. And one of my colleagues says, even if you are disabled, you should have to blink your eyes or do something to start a machine. Mm. Some kind of a thing where you are taking agency to do that. In those jurisdictions, there has been an increase in in the actual number, but the percentage of deaths is really about um, 0.2 to 0.3% of all deaths will be an assisted suicide Mm. death. However, in countries where euthanasia is the norm, and in Canada, since the law came in, we've had a tiny, tiny number of assisted suicides and a very large number of euthanasias. So in countries like Canada, the Netherlands, Belgium and other places like that where euthanasia is is legal the 
rise of deaths because of this has been very stark. Mm. For example, in Canada, we've only had the law for just over three years, and now we're up to 2% of all deaths. And Mm. in a study that was done in 2015 in uh, in Belgium, they had, uh, I had a look at that study, and they had... Uh, I think it was 8.6% of deaths were euthanasia with consent and 2.some percent were deaths of, with euthanasia without consent. And I said, well, I wonder 8.6% of deaths, I'm wondering where that fits with, um, you know, Canadian statistics. Mm-hmm. Well, 8.6% of deaths would have had would have been equal to people who died with lung disease. The only... M- deaths that would have been more frequent than that would have been cancer, heart disease, and strokes or other things like that. And so this was a uh, was within the top 10 deaths. And I said, well, I wonder where 2.3 would be or mm. whatever it was. And that was down between 8 and 9%. So both of those t- things within Canada would have been within the top 10%. And it really ought to kind of scare us that yeah. in yeah. these countries, there's also... 2.3% of the deaths that are without consent. Mm. So this is supposed to be this big thing about choice. But quite a number of these deaths are without consent. And that, that's that's a bit scary. Mm-hmm. We were talking before before this conversation with, with you and about the fact that is, is suicide my universal human right? Like, is it my right as a human to be able to kill myself or to hurt myself? Because in in that case, like nobody can legally stop me. Not the government. Not if it's my right as a human being to kill myself, I shouldn't be stopped. Like if if, if I have a uh, whatever I'm doing right now, I'm about to kill myself. You cannot stop me. It's my right as a human. So, but it's actually not. Like exactly. l- you're legally stopped when you when you're hurting yourself. When you're like you you, you like. Uh, You'll be tied up, and, and, give, and you, they're going to give you medicine. They're going to give you because that's not the belief. People are going to stop you from doing that. But then, then the discourse here is like, it's my right. I want to decide when, when. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a it's it's weird. Yes, it's it's really schizophrenic in how we believe. And our brothers and sisters who are living with disabilities have a, a lot of terror around this, and rightly so. Because what we're actually saying, if we say that assisted suicide or euthanasia are legal and permissible and a societal good, is that there are some lives that are not worth living. You can't get around that. I had a meeting with my own member of parliament here. She completely disagreed with me. She said, that's not what it means at all. And I said, well, it's pretty hard to argue against it if you're using government dollars to pay for these procedures, mm-hmm. if you're passing government bills that regulate them, if you're paying people out of the government system to do it, it's it means that you've decided that it's okay for this person to, to have the life of this person taken. I was at one conference one time and I said, something about doctors killing patients and somebody said oh now you're being inflammatory with your language Mm -hmm. and I said well help me play nice in the sandbox here what am I supposed to say Mm. and the person said well you could say take the life so you know 
with a very vast attempt at not to roll my eyes. I <laughs> have tried to do that. But basically, we are saying that mm. there are some lives that are not yeah. worth living. Yeah. And so what does that mean to us as Christians? Do we really believe that? Mm. Yeah. No, we don't believe that. Mm. Yeah. We believe that every single individual from the moment of conception is created in the image of God, is part of our human family, deserves protections, deserves our love, deserves our compassion, deserves our resources, and that we need to come alongside each other. We are not promised anywhere in Scripture a life that doesn't have some suffering in it. Look at Jesus, for heaven's sakes. Mm. Um, you know, he's a man of sorrows and mm. acquainted with suffering. Mm. And all of us have this. Why, why bother to even come into the world at all if you're not going to suffer? You, this, this happens. And we have to get our act together about what it means to suffer. And I get things in the media all the time that, well, the only reason Dr. Cottle doesn't want us to have the right to have somebody end our lives is because she enjoys watching people suffer. Yeah, and which is kind of disheartening yeah. after spending yeah, thirty years of exactly. my life working at caring for people and eliminating yeah, as much suffering as possible. Yeah. But this is where the narrative goes with this. Mm. And the other thing is, it's supposed to be evidence based. All right, so medicine is supposed to be based on studies and all this other that it, what works, what doesn't work. We're supposed to do that. And so, what evidence is there that a patient is better off dead? There is no evidence mm, that mm, the person is better mm, off dead. Mm. The, the evidence, we don't know. And I have s- said this in the media yeah. sometimes, that we have no evidence that the person is better off dead. And yeah. the comments that come up are, stop stuffing your religion down our throats. And I asked my daughter, who was in medical school when a lot of this was going on, and I said, how is this stuffing my religion down people's mm-hmm. throats? It's a simple fact that we are never going to know from a double-blind controlled study whether a person's better off dead. And she said, well, Mom, people believe that after they die, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. And so for you to even say that it might not be the best thing means that you are challenging their belief. idea, their belief. Exactly. And so That's it's another a, belief. It's a faith-based statement to yeah, say exactly. that we believe that that yeah. you're you're going to be better off dead. But anyway, that doesn't do well in the public sphere, so I don't encourage it as a response. But <laughs> it's, use that argument. <laughs> no, it's it's not it's not worth doing that. But I think getting people to see that we are actually talking about saying that there are some lives that are not worth living. This is really important because. If you're a 27-year-old and your boyfriend has just dumped you or you have postpartum depression or, 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 Mm. or you just had, up until the law passed, you just had a diving accident like Johnny Erickson Tata and you're paralyzed from the neck down, we, we don't give you death. Mm. (laughs) We give you comfort. We come alongside you. We try to help you. That's what it's all about. And if you are in the place where you're trying to self-harm, we protect you from yourself. Yeah, exactly. We say we're going to, just what you were saying, we don't use too many straight jackets now, but we do have (laughs) medicines and other things that we do. But we will certify a person and say you have to stay in the hospital until you're not 
a danger to, to yourself, yourself yeah. and others. Yeah. Uh, because we care about each other. We we say, well, that's not a reason. We don't we don't have little signs out on the Lionsgate Bridge or any of the bridges, uh, Golden Gate Bridge. In fact, there's somebody in the Golden Gate Bridge that walks the bridge all the yeah, time to exactly. talk people yeah. out of jumping off. We don't have a little sign that says, you know, move farther out onto the bridge because you'll be successful if yeah, you go exactly. out there. If you yeah. jump from here, somebody's yeah. going to catch you. You know, we, we come alongside. We say there are reasons to live. We care about you. We love you. And uh, that those verses that love is stronger than death. We we have to believe that. That's the whole message of Jesus is mm. that love is stronger than death. And now that this is seen as such a right and so much about autonomy, this the phrase that's used is, you know, my life, my death, my choice. Yeah. This is just a lie because it's not just your death. Uh, and your life is not just yours. Yes. In the well, same way. E- even if you believed that yeah. your life right. was just your life, right, right. your death is not just your death. Right, right. Uh, when people die, the whole community is affected. Even yeah. if you do a suicide. And assisted suicide really is not, or euthanasia, it's not the typical suicide. It's not the time where you take too many meds or you go out behind the barn and everybody is upset because they are saying to themselves, how could we have prevented this or whatever? But at least you have done it yourself. When it's assisted suicide or euthanasia, it is a big deal for a lot of people. Uh, one of the talks I gave recently, I had people stand up. I had one of my friends represent the patient, and then I got people out of the audience, and I said, okay, you're the doctor. You stand here. You're the nurse. You stand here. You're the pharmacist. You stand here. Mm. You're the ward clerk. You stand here. You're the neighbor. You stand here. You're the pastor. You stand here. You're the people who are writing the legislation. You stand here. You are the coroner. You stand here. You are the family. You stand here. And I just, I Mm. had all these people. And then I said, out of all these people who are here, they don't just represent themselves. They represent an entire team of people. So how autonomous does this look to you? And not only are there these people, there are people behind them who are the regulators and the bean counters who see this as something that is very cheap and very easy to do that are saying, you have to do this. And that is another thing that's very scary about this is that People who are are being forced, people within all of these professions are being forced to participate against their consciences and against their will. Mm. Yeah, but the thing is like the argument would be like that whole team of people, they're all selfish. Yeah, exactly. They, they are not letting saying. him die. Like you all people like they want to take care of him and and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you want him to suffer. You're all selfish. You'd be like... Yeah, it's it's it, the, it, the it's, argument's weird. Yeah. It's it's very it's weird, but it's it's one of the that's in fact that's what they say. Mm-hmm. If you want to suffer yourself, that's fine, but don't make me suffer. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's if we were to say, well, if you want to die on your own, fine, go die, but don't make me kill you. Well, that's not considered. Uh, they're not considered selfish from asking me, mm-hmm. who signed up to heal people, to to take the life of a patient, mm-hmm. and it's it. it I think that there is, um, Jay Budjashevsky wrote a book called What We Can't Not Know. Very interesting book. And one of the things I think in this whole debate, this whole thought 
process around these issues is that there are some things that we can't not know. There are some mm. things that we just go yuck about and mm. we don't understand where they come from sometimes. And one of those things is that deeply we understand, I think as part of the common grace that we don't kill each other. It's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And even if the other person asks, Hippocrates, 2,400 years ago, who was not a Christian, obviously, um, said that he would want his followers, he and his followers would take an oath that they would not give deadly medicine to anyone, even if asked. So that is our old growth forest of Hippocratic tradition, 2,400 years old of not killing each other. And the problem is that that when you start to say that there are some lives that aren't worth living, where do you stop? Yeah. Where do you stop? Yeah. It, how, do you, how can you say that there is, how can you quantify suffering and say, well, you qualify for this, but you don't? And who decides? And who decides? Yeah. I, I've said to people in Canada, okay, who do you think should decide? Well, it's probably going to come down to somebody in the government. Okay, so you want the people who brought you the Canada Revenue Agency and Canada Post to decide whether you live or die <laughs> without any chance of appeal. Okay, but even even there, when when the government says, okay, we're we're going to try to make these regulations, then what happens is you get some you get a court case, a court challenge, like we just had here in Canada, and it will come all around the world, mm. where. Two individuals, one of whom had post-polio syndrome, one of whom had cerebral palsy and some other disabilities that went along with that, said, why should we not be able to have access to this? Because our suffering is way worse than someone who has pancreatic cancer, whose pain is well controlled, who'll be dead in three months, maybe. Mm. And we may have to live for years and years with this. Why should we not be able to have access to this? And the court said, you're right. You should have access, and the government's decided not to appeal it. So they have to amend the legislation now to include, to get rid of this idea that your death needs to be reasonably foreseeable. So these things, when you say that suffering is the enemy that is going to be so-called cured, Mm. in adverted commas, by death, then you have opened the door for open season. Mm. And the other thing this does is it gets us off the hook as a society to care for people who are difficult to care for. And many of these folks who are living with disabilities are living below the poverty line with all of these extra needs that they have for mobility aids and Mm. other things. In fact, there's a case in Ontario um, Roger Foley, who is suing the government because he had terrible care at home. Mm. He'd been dragged across the floor. He has a severe disability. He'd been dragged across the floor. He had been food poisoned a number of times, and he got into the hospital, and he said, I'm not going home until I have more control over who's caring for me, and I'm not going to end up dead. So he's been in the hospital in Ontario, and he has recordings of two different healthcare professionals, quote unquote, who came in and spoke to him and said, well, we can't do that, but we can do, we can do euthanasia for you. We can give you made. So what is this saying about our society if that's what we're offering? I've had people say to me when I've been on the radio or in other media, oh, Dr. Cottle, don't be so sure you don't want to have euthanasia and assisted suicide until you've seen the inside of a nursing home. And 
this is supposed to be an argument in favor of it. And I said, well, in fact, I have seen the inside of many nursing homes. And Mm. I think it's obscene that someone would rather die than go to a place where we're caring for the elders and those who have served us for so many years. You know, it doesn't have to be like that. Mm-hmm. I have I have a one-year-old granddaughter right now who's in diapers and is incontinent. And where she lives, it doesn't smell like urine. It doesn't have mm. to be like that. Mm. And why is it that these places have paint on the walls that sucks the light out of the room and, and a really low caregiver to a resident, you know, really high, excuse me, caregiver to resident ratio so that People who, who are there who are completely compass mentis are, are actually uh, mm-hmm. having real cognitive difficulties. In fact, they did a study, for example, where they gave everybody in a nursing home Tylenol regularly for a month. And they found that the, the behavioral problems were decreased by 50%. So that means that a lot of these people who are living in these care homes are having pain. And we're not dealing with it. Yeah. So what's wrong with us yeah. as a culture that we're not caring for each other and we're saying oh well you know you don't have to go there we'll make sure that you you die a quick and painless death what's this going to do to our idea of who we are now I know we're speaking to a global audience but for those of you who don't know Canadians are very proud of being caring people we will stand in line so that others can have health care. We, in fact, we love standing in line. Uh, <laughs> we're very polite. We, we have this universal health care system. We welcome refugees. We have this opinion of ourselves that we're very caring and inclusive mm-hmm. and loving. Well, what's this going to mean to us and to our identity all the, the years that we have built up being this kind of a society? If what we do is we say to anybody who has difficult care needs, well, you know, we, we can't really afford that, but we'll make sure that you die a quick and painless death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about uh, the language of I want I want my death to, de- to be with dignity. Yeah. And and what what does dignity actually mean when you say it? It's, I think it normally means like with less prolonged pain, because if if because people people kind of mi- kind of mix with uh, with uh, what it means like painful death. And gruesome, or bloody, or or smelly sometimes, <laughs> because you would say like, if if I'm a, if I'm a, you know a soldier in a war and I you know I explode, would that be uh like would, would, was that dying with dignity? Or if I'm in a in a plane crash in a car crash, was that dying with dignity? Like that person didn't die with dignity. Oh, we're so sorry. Your son didn't die with dignity. Or w- would that mean like like what you were saying? I'm really 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 old, and I, I really cannot hold my 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 like I'm incontinent, yeah. and like I don't I don't want to live that this like that. That's not that's not living with dignity. Please kill me. Or like, so, so the way we define dignity. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. I think it's very important. It is very important. In fact, um, Dr. Harvey Max Chachanoff, a wonderful palliative care psychiatrist and world authority on dignity-conserving care, he started looking into what constitutes dignity-conserving care back Mm. in, uh, in the last century when he was seeing that the reason that people were asking in the Netherlands and other places were asking for euthanasia was because of a lack of dignity. So what does it mean? Mm -hmm. And he found that there were several domains to dignity. 
one of the domains was being able to care for oneself. So doing the activities of daily living, mm. so toileting yourself, feeding yourself. But, you know, there again, that's a construct, really, because my one-year-old granddaughter, she gets, we toilet her, we yeah. feed her, um, and she gets pretty messy with both of those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and nobody says she's not dignified. Nobody says she doesn't deserve to be cared for and to be loved and to be cherished. And I think that we don't define who we are by our bodily functions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diane Coleman, who is one of the founders of yeah. Not Dead Yet in the United States, a really astute attorney there, uh, said she's she has had a, a condition where she has had bladder incontinence for a good part of her life, and she said it. She has people who come up to her and say that they'd rather be dead than to live like uh-huh. her. And she said, "Talk about dignity." Yeah. She said, "It's it's offensive to me that people would say they would rather be dead than to be like me simply because I leak." Yeah. And yes. And so that's one of the things. And what does it say to uh, someone like our former mayor, Sam Sullivan, who needs help with all of his activities of daily living? Does he not dignified because he yeah. needs help with that? Is is the need for help in any area yeah, mean exactly. that we're not dignified? Mm, this is a yeah. bunch of garbage. We all need help. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen, independence is not a Christian virtue. Mm interdependence is a Christian virtue. We need to get over ourselves in terms of being these North American bootstrap pulling up people and get in there and be community, be vulnerable, allow people to help us when we need help. Um, Dr. Hui here in mm. at Regent um, talked about the Christian duty to be cared for mm. when we need care. Christian duty to every, be cared for. To be cared for. Every bit as much as the Christian duty to care. Mm. If we're out there, all out there running around finding somebody to care Careful, for, yeah. who's going to be getting cared? Who's, yeah. get, who's the person being cared for? We have a duty to allow others to care for us because of what it does for our community, what it does for us, what it does for the people who are doing the caring. This is, you know... Bearing one another's burdens, and a burden's not a word I use in this because people already feel like they're burdens, but this is what it says in Scripture. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that's what it means. And sometimes what that means is that we we are allowing others to care for us. In fact, I'm already praying that if I get to the place where I have cognitive impairment, like my father did, that I will have the grace to allow those who love me to care for me in such a way that it will be a prophetic message Mm -hmm. to people around. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love uh, Dr. Sheila Cassidy's idea that uh, a hospice doctor, uh, she said that when we care for people extravagantly, the way that Mary, Martha's sister, cared for Jesus by spilling her precious spikenard over uh, and anointing Jesus really for burial. And it was her dowry really that she was spending at that point. And she spent it on Jesus and he, he loved it. It was, it was so beautiful for him. And the aroma of that went up 
as an extravagance of caring. And when we care, Dr. Cassidy says, when we care for people who are not going to get better, who are marginalized, who are vulnerable, that's that same precious spike nard being poured out. That's that extravagance of caring that is a witness to our world that every human being is made in the image of God and is worth our care. And you know, brothers and sisters in the Lord around the world, we have to get back to that. We have to have enough margin in our lives that we are willing to care for each other. We have to allow others into our lives to care for us. We have to be like those first century Christians who turned the world upside down by caring for each other, by rescuing babies off the garbage pit, by running toward the plagues and and laying down their lives, by sharing everything, by, by realizing that dignity isn't something that you earn, but it's something you're born with because you're born and made in the image of God and that if you're not feeling dignified, that's our problem. We have to come alongside you and and build that dignity into your life to uphold you and carry you and lift you up to the Lord. This is the this is the great privilege that we have. It's and it's it's beautiful. Um, I've been in homes where a very independent person would say, well, you know, I'm gone beyond what I need to do now, and I don't want to be a burden to my family, and so it's time for me to go. And what I realize is everything that's going to be lost there, that mm. this super independent person is never going to have the experience of the people around him caring for him when he can't care for himself so that it's not just about what he could provide for them or what he could yeah. do for them, but about him being him and how they can just love him in that. And all those people who love him are going to be robbed of that experience at the end of his life mm. of being able to look back and say, well, he didn't let us give him very much in life, but at least at the end of life, mm-hmm. I could wash him mm-hmm. or feed him or read to him or be with him. And I think about another image that that uh, Dr. Cassidy uses, and she talks about Mary standing at the foot of the cross. And would anybody say that Mary standing there was doing nothing? Not a single person would say that was doing nothing. She was bearing witness. And, you know, she couldn't even give him a sip of water Mm. or wipe his face or speak to him or read his favorite scripture passages or hold his hand or do any of that. But it still was nothing. And it was, excuse me, it still was not nothing. It was powerful. And so this idea that, well, I can't do anything more, it's nothing, that is also a big lie. Being there, being present, being radically present, that's what Emmanuel is all about, God with us. And when we bring Jesus to other people, even if they don't know him, that being radically present, in French the word is accompagner, means being there right in the nitty-gritty, that God is no person's debtor. And when we do that, we have a richness in our own soul, in our own lives, that that is pure gold. I like to say that this autonomy and going our own way and having our so-called rights is is false glitter. It's false gold. That idea that all that glisters or glitters mm. isn't gold. Mm. So true. It's mm. very tempting. We we're control freaks in the Western mm. world. Uh, but 
But true gold is gold refined in the fire, the gold that God has purified by through the times when we've suffered, when we've accompanied other people in suffering, all of those things, those, that's, that's the, the true gold. Yeah. And that's what, uh, that's what we need. And we, we want to stand before the Lord someday, shortly, really. It, it, every lifetime is very short. And we want to be able to say, uh, we want to hear him say, well done, you were there. Just those things out of Matthew 25. You know, I was sick and in prison mm, mm. and sad. And you were there. You accompanied me. Mm. You were with me. You were like Emmanuel. And mm. that's what we need to get back to. And, you know, this isn't just something that each individual person needs to figure out. No. Although you do have to figure that yeah. out in your heart. But we need to come together as communities and as wider communities to say, this matters. Yeah. This really matters. And we need to uh, understand that, as, as has been said, ideas and philosophies have consequences. And bad ideas and philosophies yep. have victims. And this is one that is already claiming a lot of victims. And the victims are not only the people who've died. The victims are the people who are left behind, who don't have that beautiful narrative of having cared for each other mm. at the end of life. The victims are everyone in our society who's now feeling like he or she has to be useful in order to be able to stay alive. The victims are people who are being asked to go against their most deeply held convictions in order to participate in in something that is is against their their conscience and mm. against their will and mm. these things this this will victimize all of us but you know i still have a lot of hope because god is sovereign mm. and this is a long it's a long game <laughs> it's a battle but it's a long game and we have the Lord of life who loves us and fights our battles for us. Mm. And I think that he promises us that when he's lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself. And the best way I think we can lift him up is to care for those who are suffering and to care for those who are, are frightened at the end of life. Uh, Woody Allen has a saying that he doesn't mind dying. He just doesn't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> and so I think some of us feel that way too. And we need to actually say, you know, you don't have to go through this alone. It's not just you who will be there when it happens. We are going to, yeah. we're going to uh, do this together. Yeah, talking about that, do you, is there a thing like, cause you know, in a mat leave, like like we just had a baby and my and my wife is in a mat leave. Yeah. So she she basically gets out of work to take care of of of, of our little yep. our little baby because he he needs constant care. Yes. Care and my wife's got to be there. Is there such a thing for if you say my dad need, needs constant yes. care? I'm going to take a leave. Yes, there and is. There is. Yes, okay. there is. There's a compassionate leave. Compassionate that, leave. Yes, I think different places call it different things, but that is available and there is some talk about making expanding that and making it so that it will be um it will be more accessible to more people uh. for longer periods of time mm -hmm. the problem is that um it probably needs to expand it more than the government can likely afford, afford it. it yeah but the, it also should be really expanded to not just for people at the end of life but for 
say you have a child with a disability, you should be able to uh, give some relief to that family if one of the parents or the parents together are sharing the care of that uh-huh. child. Mm-hmm. Because that saves us an awful lot of money as a as a society mm-hmm. if the person who really loves this child is yeah. caring for the child. Yeah, yeah. That, so that is, yeah. there are some other issues around it. But I think as 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 the church with a capital C... We need to reclaim this, and we need to not become discouraged. The, the, the admonition from Galatians about not becoming weary in well-doing, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up, I think is very true in these, these situations, that we need to really care for each other, and we need to not give up in caring for each other and in showing and telling and telling others the joys that there are when we really do get in there and get our hands dirty and mm-hmm. and and care for each other. I mm-hmm. think that's yeah. that's very important to to be doing that. I had talked about this before how the idea of rights are important because we live in a fallen world, but rights are really an admission that love has failed. Mm-hmm. That if we all looked out for each other the way we're supposed to in Philippians 2, we wouldn't need to have rights, but we do. So we need to be focusing yeah. on love. And what does that mean? What does that really look like? And I, I love the last two lines of a Longfellow poem. What he says on these two lines is, As the evening twilight fades away, the sky is filled with stars, invisible by day. And I think as our world around us gets darker... And we don't have some of these, uh, the, the rest of the people are not shining like stars. They're all the healthcare workers that are just saying, oh, yes, well, we'll, we'll arrange for the maid team to come in and all these sorts of things. That those of us who really care about the image of God in every fellow human being are going to have that opportunity if we don't give up mm-hmm. to shine as lights in the universe mm-hmm. um, and we would have been invisible maybe by day, but mm-hmm. at night we're going to be able to shine. Mm-hmm. It's times like this. I wish these microphones weren't attached to a stand because then we could do a little mic drop at the end of the <laughs> of a, uh, of a podcast. Margaret, thank you so much for – thanks for not only for talking to us today but for your years of advocacy yeah. and being a prophetic voice to say, no, this you know <laughs> we need to think differently about that, not only to society but actually to the church as well. So um, we're grateful for you and thanks so much for your time and for all the bigger stuff that you're doing other than just a podcast with us. Well, you're quite <laughs> welcome. Thank you for <laughs> yes. listening. It makes a big difference if people are paying attention. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit regent.net. That's R-G-N-T dot net. <laughs>